This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This is the Opinion Podcast from The Times. I'm Philip Webster. I'm the editor of The Times Redbox Bulletin and the Redbox website. I'm standing in for Tim Montgomery, who's away on holiday. Today we have David Aronovich, our award-winning columnist, Susie Jagger, deputy foreign editor, and Lech Mintoff Chiz, who is the digital news editor. ISIS has made the most unlikely groups become allies. A few months ago, American military commanders admitted that the US and so-called Middle Eastern coalition would have to collude with President Assad, not least to assure that uh, Western fighter jets striking ISIS positions would not be shot down by the Syrian regime. Now in today's times, we learn that Afghan and Pakistan Shias are being recruited by Iran on behalf of President Assad to kill ISIS. Is it enough to be friends because you are united as enemies? Everything has seemed too simple in recent days. Lots of goodwill from Europe to us, lots of goodwill from the government to Europe. Mr Juncker saying that no-one expects Britain to leave the Union. A deal and a yes recommendation seemed almost palpable. And then, yesterday, Boris weighed in to remind us that there are intelligences out there in the galaxy watching David Cameron with a great deal of critical interest. Some of it critical self-interest. Somehow we've stumbled into a world of six million dollar pets. No matter what goes wrong, there's a vet waiting with the words, we can rebuild him. Fido's got a dodgy hip, that'll be 4,800 pounds. Oh no, now he's snapped his cruise ship playing fetch. 2,000 pounds please. Oops, he's done his back in, licking his unmentionables. 1,000 pounds for MRI. Surely there are better ways to spend money. Right. As, as we record this today, politics is mourning the loss of Charles Kennedy at the far too young age of 55. When he entered the Commons in 1983, Kennedy was the youngest MP. And I remember meeting him then, and it was obvious that he was a precocious talent, certain one day to lead the party. That he duly did and took the Lib Dems to their biggest modern-day success in 2005 after it stood out against the Iraq war. But he had his problems with alcohol, sometimes big problems, and stood down as leader amid acrimony in 2006, since when he has become a more distant Westminster figure. 32 years after entering the House, he lost his Highland seat just four weeks ago. 
Now he is gone and politics has been robbed of one of its most charismatic, talented and genuinely likeable people. David, it's a sad day, really, for, for politics. Yeah, it is a sad day. I mean, it, it is interesting. I, I met uh, Charles Kennedy a few times, uh, actually in quite sociable circumstances, um, including in doing a, an event in Paris together with his family uh, uh, with him. And he was a man with really no side to him at all. Mm. I mean, there was no That's kind right. of pomposity. There was, you know, he was very self-deprecating. He was, and and he was also shy. Um, people have picked up on that. But, you know, you get this sort of great public front and he was very, very good. He was one of these people who would kind of click into something else when the, ca- when the cameras were on. And it, was, and it was attractive. But he actually was a nice man. Yeah, the tributes have been pouring in this morning and sometimes... People say things on people's death because they have to. They, it's it's the done thing to do. You had the feeling today that those tributes were were pretty genuine, every one of them. I, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, we we're a cynical old bunch, and mm. so on. And we've seen most kinds of politicians and most kind of public figures, and so on. And most of them are far more likable than people think that they are. But he was right up there with the most likable. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's. Get on with business, and and Susie, yes, the um, it's always said that your enemy's enemy is your friend. Uh, do you think that's justified in this in this case that you're you're talking about here with um, the battle against ISIS? And uh, while we're at it, how is that battle going? Well, I'm not sure it's justified. It's just it it strikes me as just being extraordinary that um, the fear of ISIS is forcing so many. Um, would uh, so many existing enemies to pretty much hold their nose and uh, put aside their their differences in an albeit very unpalatable alliance, and that this is manifesting itself in all sorts of sort of cat's cradles all over the region. So, for example, the West doesn't seem to be that unhappy about the fact that Iran is playing an increasing role in propping up the Assad regime, partly because the idea of Assad falling is so terrifying that there, there isn't really a rebel group that uh, that that the West could pretty much rely on as being veritable and being robust enough. And so the idea of having a power vacuum and ISIS raging in northeast Syria is too terrifying to um, to stand to to take any kind of stand against the increasing role of Iran. The other issue is is how it plays out to um, the way in which we choose our new friends in the Middle East. And that used to be the case that we had uh, Britain always had three pillars in the in the Middle East. We had as, as our allies we had Syria, Egypt, and we had Saudi. And now, of course, Syria um, Syria is gone. Egypt has seen the most extraordinary convulsions. And the, the issue is whether or not um, we need Sisi with, uh, I don't know if you saw in today's times, but um, you know, extraordinary, it was an Egyptian state-funded agency which admitted to an extraordinary number of, I think it was over 4,000 people since the military coup had been killed um, over the last uh, two years, half of whom were Muslim Brotherhood. You look at those numbers, which, as I say, the government had admitted to, and think... Gosh, can we really hold our nose with CZ, or do it, or is it the case that we need Egypt to such an extent because we have so so few other friends in the Middle East in the face of um, one of the most terrifying terror groups there is going? Overall, I mean, do we have any real idea of how this battle against ISIS is going across the region? I mean, are ISIS extending their their uh, tentacles everywhere? What how's it? How is it going? And 
America goes off and on. We Sometimes we hear from the Americans, sometimes we don't. And I imagine as we get closer to a presidential election, we're not going to hear too much at all. Um, the issue of America that you, you point on is, is very interesting because there's no coherence in terms of their position on striking ISIS in Iraq and in Syria. Um, and part of that is because I, I believe they did, America does not want to have a public coherent foreign policy that would see American fighter jets and American troops mm. active again in the Middle East. Um, so it's in their interests to, to not articulate that. But to look at it specifically, American fighter jets will um, strike ISIS positions in Iraq only when they are supporting the Iraq uh, regime, the Iraq army. Um, but in Syria, they will strike independently. So they will strike ISIS positions such as Raqqa. But they, the Americans have quietly admitted that they're already running out of targets in Syria. So there isn't really a mm. coherent strategy. In terms of your other question, which is how far is is ISIS progressing? Well, um, it's very interesting the way you, you express that question, because it's as if uh, you've bought into the idea that ISIS, which is, is, is in fact an Islamic state, which is what, mm. how they want to be recognised as a coherent group. Actually, they are a rag bag of separate, um, of separate rebel groups who all claim allegiance, but it's difficult to know what that allegiance means. And when you look at it on the ground, you can see that ISIS is making tremendous gains in Syria. It's now approaching very close to the Turkish border, which truly is terrifying mm. and, and would, would present a terrible problem for Erdogan in the upcoming elections on June 7. But separately, um, it's, ISIS is also um, gaining f a number of strongholds in Libya. And when you look at the, the fact that there are two rival governments in Libya and there's no real um, control of, of that country and the, the, the east and the west are, are controlled by separate governments and the south is also a mess, that's even more scary. Mm. David, what's your thoughts on these unholy alliances and is there any chance well, of them? It's what happens when you have a vacuum, isn't it? It's what happens when you don't, haven't had a coherent Western policy since, effectively in Syria, since probably 2011, uh, since the uh, beginning of the uprising against Assad. Um, there's been a series of hopes and slight kind of um, put, putting, putting a certain amount of hope initially in certain rebel groups. This wasn't backed up with any significant degree of uh, force. Uh, then we had the absolute failure to act on the uh, after the chemical weapons were used mm. by uh, Assad, a, a failure to act which originated here in Britain. You have, I think you have a kind of semi-coherent Iraq uh, policy in Iraq because there is at least a government which you can lend some support to. And I suppose, and I've heard the argument made today, that the business of re-equipping the Iraqi and also the Kurdish autonomous region armies uh, and military forces is taking a little bit of time and so on. And that whereas ISIS, uh, Islamic State, are managing to take some uh, places, they're also losing places in Iraq. But Susie's absolutely right, what's going on in Syria is a completely different matter. I mean, as, uh, it's pretty clear that Assad is beginning to run out of troops. Mm. It was, I mean, if you if you based your civil war on the fact that you were going to recruit mostly from a minority of the population in the first place, and you then lose significant uh, amounts of territory, your capacity, the capacity even of that state to run a civil war for any very great length of time, is is reduced. So it's hardly surprising, really, that into that uh, space step all kinds of possibilities, all kinds of alliances, all kinds of uh, people uh, competing for uh, for interest. Now, of course. 
course, I mean, in the long term, in the long term, the short term, the question is whether or not, uh, not just the West, we're not just talking about the West, we're essentially talking about, if you like, the kind of organised uh, world that has a, a sense of responsibility for other parts of the world, or can see what the impacts are going to be. After all, a lot of these people coming across the Mediterranean are coming from Syria. There's a fantastic mm. report which we've got um, uh, about the Syrians turning up on Greek islands, etc., coming straight over the sea. The, the concept that somehow or other you can remain separate from these events in any significant way and let them play out without them playing to you in a world as it is at the moment is a fantasy and it's being shown to be a fantasy. Like the um, death of Charles Kennedy sort of reminds us in a way, I mean, this sort of lack of will perhaps in the West, does that flow from the Iraq war and everything that uh, the fallout from that, the fact that politics... It it probably does, but... um, (laughs) And we're a very scarred nation with regard to that. Mm. But uh, I think that I mean, just listening to Susie, it, it, it made me um, wonder whether we, we aren't all rather chasing a shadow in terms of ISIS, that um, it's so been so effective with its PR and so terrifying with its images that it's pushed out and the, the atrocities that it has allowed itself to be seen to be committing, that uh, we are... We are allying ourselves um, with all these uh, all these odd bods and allowing countries like Iran to uh, to have free reign when actually our enemy is essentially a ragbag of criminal gangs all out for it for themselves mm-hmm. to grab whatever they can in whichever small sphere of influence they can happen to to snatch um, and you know obviously they you know exact Islamic extremism at this uh, end of things is something that has to be answered and has to be countered. Uh, but you do you do wonder whether we're we're actually fighting a PR construct rather than a, uh, a a proper force that can be defeated, and actually whether we're doing ourselves more harm than good um, by 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 doing so. Susie, last word to you on this. Uh, Is there any answer? (laughs) I thought, I I think the the one thing that um, I would take away from having listened to to David's points, to David's point is um, the the issue about competing interests. So in the um, almost by by turning our gaze away from other developments that uh, that, uh, other corollaries um, of the the fight against ISIS, we are turning our gaze away from other not equally worrying, but other worrying um, developments. And one of those points I'd, I would raise is, um, as was reported in the Times a couple of days ago, that the Kurds are now using their new um, sphere of influence in eastern Iraq um, and, and their support of uh, the Iraqi uh, the Iraqi forces uh, to, to gain further uh, territory themselves. They're not just li- trying to liberate areas from ISIS. And there was one report of... Um, of Kurds who were who had forced out, we think, around ten thousand Arabs from northern um, Iraqi towns, and just forcing them out in order to to try to ethnically cleanse mm. those areas. Okay, we'll move on to the Europe negotiations. Boris Johnson has just made his uh, second maiden speech as he's on his return to the Commons, and he chose to talk about uh, Europe and. Uh, David there made reference to the fact that there are some people watching Cameron very closely. David, do you think some of them want him to fail? Lots of jokes, weren't there, about Boris being on his second maiden, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, which were rather enjoyable. It was kind of... A, it, 
he, after all, he, Boris could choose anything he liked to speak about in his yeah. uh, maiden speech. And given that we know that David Cameron has said that he's not going to see out the... Well, effectively, he won't fight the next election, which means that we can speculate that he'll stay on for three years or something That's right. Like the that, contest has like to that. happen during the parliament. Well, yeah. it means the contest has started, yeah. really. I mean, in a kind of low-key way. Nobody can... You know, there are a few things to go through first. And so one of the ways in which you position yourself in the Conservative Party, although I suggest you have to do it with more care, maybe, than seemed to be the case uh, just, a, just a year ago is over Europe. So essentially we had this kind of, we had this lovely strange period of a fortnight's plain sailing, didn't we feel, which must have regarded, made you feel strange but everybody seemed to be saying yes um, Cameron won the election and he did really really well so all of a sudden we're going to let him pretty much define the terms of what it means to be satisfied about what Europe does in order for us to stay in when it mm. comes to the referendum. You, you tell us if you're happy and if you're happy we're going to go along with that and the Euro Europeans are saying, yeah, we can give you a, a, a few bits here because we, no, nobody wants to go and we love Britain, we love Britain to be in and Britain says it loves to be in. It all seemed absolutely peachy, didn't it? I mean, it was strange, really. It was really kind of odd. Dangerously quiet. Yeah. And then and then up comes this sort of business group, uh, so-called business group, which is, an, which is anti-EU, with the kind of list of things which Cameron has said over the past few years, which is quite a long list, actually, of things yeah. that the EU must do, almost none of which... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You will get, which of course he'll eventually say was my starting negotiating position, not my not my finishing ones. And then along comes Boris to say, if you don't get the things that you want, then you must be prepared to walk away, which raises mm. the question, what are the things that we want, which if we didn't get, we would walk away from, which Boris was rather, I think, less specific about. I didn't hold, hear the whole speech, but, but he was. So there's this combination of... Uh, making the demand uh, in advance of the... So to make it slightly more difficult for Cameron, but also ch- 
sorting out a position for Boris as a kind of, you know, as a serious person within the context of the Tory firmament and so on. Um, so I can say, in a way, you had two really kind of funny weeks and now it's felt a, a bit more like the Tory party as you think, think it's going to be. just to jump in, the next couple of weeks are going to be fascinating because, I don't know if you agree, David, but it strikes me that after Cameron's schmoozathon, across, to use Boris's word, I think, um, across, across the EU, where we had a sort of fairly soft soap platitudes, lots of press conferences, flags and handshaking, that actually the devil's in the detail and that at the summit on the 25th, I think it is, that Cameron is going to actually have to show some degree of detail and it'll be at that point when we see what sort of treaty change is he looking at. Is he just going for treaty change on migration, on benefits? Or, you know, that when we actually see in detail the demands that he thinks he's going to put forward, that that will crystallise some of the real awkward squads. I, my own view is that Cameron is asking for nothing like enough as far as any of the Eurosceptics are concerned and he's boiled them down to about four things that he, he knows he can get. Very sensible. Um, very sensible yeah. to ask for things you know you can get. Which is why why we're seeing the business group and, and others. Also, it looks to me as if, if all the candidates who could eventually challenge for the leadership can only do so from a standpoint that Cameron hasn't got enough, so, which is why I, I would have thought MPs will regard Boris's intervention as particularly. Um, like uh, in, in, um, on Red Books this morning, our dear colleague uh, Matthew Paris says that Cameron should grant the Cabinet freedom to speak out now not to do it nearer the time, because he'll be forced to do it anyway. Mar Matthew's view is that, in the end, Cameron will have to give ministers freedom to avoid mass resignations, therefore he should give it to them now. Do you have a view on that? It's going to be a massive bun fight, no matter what he does. Delaying it, I can see the argument both ways, frankly. I think, I think really, it's a matter of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a man facing execution um, being told, do, do, do you fancy a last meal now or in an hour's time? Um, it's sort of nerdling around the edges. Personally, I'm, I'm, I'm completely fascinated, endlessly fascinated with, with the character of Boris himself and this, uh, this, th these games that he plays and this, this relationship he has with the public. Um, he, pulls a, he pulls a fascinating, brilliant trick again and again and again he's very I, I feel he's quite like Nigel Farage in this in that he 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 has this he's managed to get this level of trust with the public the public he he, he is by speaking what people know to be true what he said is that if Cameron really wants change in Brussels he's going to have to wield a big stick and he's, of course he's right anybody can see that he's right um but that he's he's managed to get this trust while whilst fundamentally being an untrustworthy person. I mean, you don't really need to dig very deep into Boris's life before you start thinking. Mm, I'm not Careful. really sure. <laughs> and uh, and as for as for Nigel Farage, I know Susie's desperate to jump in on this one. You know, that again, he 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 says things that um, people instinctively um, adhere to and find attractive. Um, yet this is a man who says, "I'm resigning." Oh no, no, I'm not. You know, he's not somebody. That, that, that is worthy of our trust, yet somehow, by just tapping into the, the sort of undercurrents of people's thoughts that are not expressed by the, the mainstream, um, has, has got a level of trust which, 
is is a very odd disconnect for me. Just on that issue of of the disingenuousness of of, of Boris, it might be a point to remind people of their of Boris's fairly robust European background. He was yeah. a European correspondent. His father was an MEP, um, and he backed, I think, Ken Clark. Did he not in the leadership race? One of the most pro-European t- conservatives um, in the la- in the last thirty years. So. One wonders. Well, I expect if Cameron wins, he will become very pro-European again. But um, <laughs> David, what do you think? I mean, do you think the do you think Matthew's taken the view, the view here that inevitably there are going to be resignations at the end of this, and there are people who will use Europe to stake out their I, position for the future? I think it's just as a matter of timing, uh, really. I mean, I think what Cameron will say is, if I do this now, then in that case, as soon as the big beasts start kind of staking their positions, then we won't be able to discuss anything else ever. So I'll hold this off until we get nearer to the campaign and we actually have a proposition, and then I'll let them say, you know. So I would imagine he's saying to them, yes, the time will come when, of course, you will be able to say what you want, but I don't want it complete, so completely dominating the government's agenda by doing that now. That would seem to me to be a very rational position mm. to take if you can hold it. And if they, by and large, agree to it, and let's, let's imagine a putative conversation in which, say, Ian Duncan Smith has been discussing this with David Cameron, I don't know whether such discussions take place anymore and uh, and so on. But if they do, if I were David Cameron, I'd be saying to Ian Duncan Smith, look, you've got a lot of stuff to do on welfare, etc. And if you start talking about Europe now in a kind of big way, we can't get any of it done. It'll just completely drown out whatever we're trying mm. to do. So I promise that when it comes close to the uh, referendum, you will closer to the referendum, you'll be able to speak out and say whatever you want. So right. let's hold it for now. Wouldn't yeah. that make sense to you? Yeah, mm-hmm. it would. I mean, Cameron obviously would love to get this done next year, but already the people like Philip Hammond within the cabinet have been been saying, "Don't do it in 2016." There's great suspicion that if he does it in 2016, it'll, he's trying to ride in on the back of the election victory. Mm, what, without, why is that a dreadful thing? But that would make perfect sense. Yeah. Surely the Hammond, other Hammond, Hammond, I think Hammond and others will uh, are out to make it more difficult for him. But surely the most uh, the uh, a parallel process which is happening at the same time obviously if it's parallel stupid, is that there is a process of trying to uh, drive a wedge through the awkward squad so that uh, if, if Cameron can in some way get perhaps Michael Howard or Peter Lilly on side or just to try to get a Eurosceptic group on side then that would be part of his battle would it not? If, if he can succeed in doing that that would help I think yeah let's move on um to our third item and we've got an angry man here I won't yeah. say an angry young man or angry old man but we've got an angry man here Clef, tell us why you're so angry about um, these expensive operations for pet well as, as I said in my intro really that is, is there not a better way to spend money I, <laughs> I think well, it strikes me that uh, that you know we will we will of course spend an awful lot of money on trying to save, save human life but that's a human life. To spend the same, or sometimes in, in looking down the list of um, costs for treatment, sometimes more money uh, on on helping a pet, um, which should perhaps, you know, if, if a pet needs a hip replacement, it's probably quite old. It probably has other things going wrong with it or about to go wrong with it. <laughs> it you know, it, it, what's the prognosis for a hip, you know, hip replacement? Well, you know, maybe maybe a bit of extra life. I don't know. Maybe 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 a, a comfortable life for three months or something. Maybe call it call it a year and a half in dog years. I mean, I, I, I just think that, 
you buy you get a, you buy an animal it's your pet you love it very much but you, when you buy a pet it's not unless you buy a tortoise you are buying an animal and a, a, a relationship which you know right at the outset is not going to last as long as you are so to then lie to yourself and to your other loved ones that love this pet and spend all this money chasing a lost cause of keeping this dribbling farting creature going for a little bit longer it's just it's dishonest it's actually i think it's quite selfish when there's actually so much more that you could do with these thousands of pounds you you can spend on an animal and uh you know i I was i was at a presentation by a a, a helicopter ambulance crew the other day 1500 pounds pays for a helicopter to fly halfway across the country pick somebody up get them to a major trauma center and save their life you know you give money to Silverline, and um, which the charity, one of our charity appeal charities, and you can, you know, for for the cost of of, of you know making your goldfish no longer constipated, which was three hundred pounds spent by one um, soul, you can you know pay for somebody to go and visit an elderly person, or to or to have a, a line where people can, you know, is that not a better way to mem- me- uh, to mem- uh, remember your pet than? You know, the, 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 David, I, David is frowning. I think. Like if I, I were yeah. to go through your household budget, mm. bit by bit, and everything that you spend, would I not find all over the place discretionary items that I could argue would be better spent on air ambulances? Uh, the reason why I ask, I'm not. I mean, the the the, the, the goldfish thing is a slightly extreme example. Um, I suspect you don't keep a dog. I don't, but I have. No, you know, well, if, if you did, or if you knew a lot about dogs, you'd know that some dogs actually need hip replacements quite early in their life and live quite a long time with their hip replacements, actually. It's not just a factor of age. Unfortunately, it's also a factor of breeds. Now, if you had been talking another about... Issue cruelty, let's say, well, no, that is, that is another issue, and, that, uh, and that's an issue which the Times has covered quite a lot, which is the inbreeding of certain kind of weaknesses mm. into, uh, into animals. But the problem is, let's say you've got a dog which has after at the age of 6 has a uh, has a has a, has a, a lymphoma problem for which it requires quite expensive um, uh, treatment which is effectively chemotherapy do you give it or do you not how much is it costing? Where do you end? Where do you where do you do you end up? Oh gosh, Fido's Fido's looking a bit wrinkly. Should we give it a botox? I don't know. I mean, these. No, no, I gave you a specific example. So we so we gave our dog those drugs for about two years before how she much died. How much does it cost? Uh, it would certainly have cost quite a few hundred pounds, and you could make an argument that each penny of that would have been better spent on some ter- some better cause somewhere else. I am I'm not saying that I do not understand um, that people want to spend. Uh, uh, money on uh, on their pet and that they love their pet it's the it's the level uh it's it is the extreme level to which this has got i mean the num- the the turnover of the top 100 vet businesses has doubled in the last five years it's not a matter of oh there's um there's something wrong with a pet right quick put it down i don't i don't i don't th- obviously you want to take care of an animal um but often the prognosis for treatment is 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 not good. But um, what would you say in the case of, uh, you know, a, uh, an old lady in her 80s, 90s, living on her own, um, got a bit of money, um, en- enough to leave a little to her children, but the pet is her only 
Absolutely. I completely, I completely get that. I completely, I completely get that. That I can, I completely get that. But then, but you know, that's where we go back to where I'm talking about. You know, do you buy a tortoise or do you buy, a, you know, a mayfly? Um, you know, if if your if your if your animal's going to um, last you for the rest of your life, I can absolutely see the value in it. I can see the value in pets. It's not that I'm some sociopathic animal hater. <laughs> I think you are. Um, I, I just, I just. I think I you're evil. You know, Essentially I'm, evil. I'm really <laughs> glad. I'm really glad there's an animal lover in this room because. I know there are millions of them at home and they're probably screaming at their computer if they've not already kicked the screen in, you know what I'm saying. I was really worried that people would just agree with me in here. Um, but um, I don't think Susie agrees with me either. I, I think Susie's... I was going to make a separate point, which is that it's not the fault of pet owners and how much they're paying. It's Sorry to be slightly serious about it. It's the fact that veterinary surgeries are not regulated in terms of their free fee structures in any way so that the fault is not um, someone who is gutted because their beloved Labrador needs a £2,000 um, type of treatment. It's the fact that veterinary surgeries are exploiting our good nature. Oh. I, here, here, and and what are the what are the figures? Where where are where are the figures saying? Here are the outcomes. Here's the cost benefit. You know, you you you, you get that. You know that if you give a certain drug to a, a cancer patient, you are likely to get according to you know the, it's all laid out by Nice. You know. Um, that what what the likely outcomes to be the cost benefit all this sort of stuff there's nothing with that there's no there's for pets there's no sort of if you do this treatment to this pet you know are you likely to no, uh, there is there like is no regulatory structure it's, and that's why if you are if you have a pet and you know that you have to take your pet to the vet it's as scary financially as going to the dentist knowing that you could walk out with a bill true. with certainly three three nut three zeros on the end of it yeah um, i think vets and dentists have the longest period of training um probably longer than hospital doctors and, and just just one, one extra point so they, though, do, they deserve to get but something it's, it's a one-sided bet it's a bit like lawyers isn't it you know you go into a legal action the only the only party that's definitely going to win is the lawyer that's the truism we all know it's a bit like it's a bit like that with vets isn't it that it's more than that, is it? I, th- I, I would argue that there are plenty of, of professionals who, for whom it, it takes years to qualify. Um, and yes, of course, they, they have the, the, the right and they should have the incentive to be able to, to claw that money back. But of the number of people whom I know who've gone to a veterinary surgery in tears or in a state of acute vulnerability, if someone turns around, if a vet turns around and says the bill is X and uh, do you want this treatment to go ahead, you're not in a particularly um, robust frame of mind in order to consider whether or not that's a fair price. We can rebuild him, we have the technology. Well, at that moment of unusual agreement, I think we'll... We can all say, happy birthday, Philip. Happy birthday, Philip Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, so, thank you to David. Thank you, Lech. Thank you to Susie. Tim will be back next week. For more information, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash comment central. You can subscribe via iTunes. If any of you out there haven't yet subscribed to the Times free email bulletin. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box forward slash sign up. And I think this morning we're about 30 people away from 40,000. So you could help to get us over that, um, that milestone. Thank you very much. And Tim will be back next week. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.